LinkedIn presents. Yo, what's going on? I'm Vinny Potestivo, and you are listening to I Have a Podcast. You know, they often say, don't meet your heroes. Maybe they don't have mine in mind. The person you're about to meet in our episode today is none other than someone who literally paved the way for me to get to do what I do for a living, which is make people stand out, thrive, connect them creatively to successful opportunities. I'm giving a big shout out to Doug Herzog. You may know him as a president of MTV or Comedy Central. He has deep, deep roots in the creation of the cable industry. Tune into this episode as we realize the critical role of individual talent and the perspective in creating truly captivating, compelling programming. We're going to dive into the democratization of content and understand the, the significance that creators potentially can and will play in the future media landscape while we uncover the unbeatable power of authenticity, being unique, and being unique in producing engaging media content. I am stoked for you all to listen to this. It is a masterclass in and of itself. Sit back, take out your notebooks, and enjoy this brief conversation with me and Doug Herzog. First, he has an awesome podcast, a literal audio history of the creation of Basic Cable. I beg you to go listen to it. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's called Basic, B-A-S-I-C, with a big old exclamation point. And I kick off this interview by asking Doug about the creation of the podcast. I just jumped into this. I was advising the company that produced it. I was advising them. They're like, you should do a podcast. I'm like, I'm and I came up with this goofy idea. First, I, it was an MTV idea. And I thought it might be too narrow. We we're going to try and tag it to the 40th. And then I was like, nobody's ever written a cable television book. Like somebody should. It will get yeah. written one day. And I was like, let me try that way in. We sold it to Sirius, I think, in the middle of COVID at a time when everybody was on the getting on the podcast train. And they, in particular, were late to the party and trying to figure out they were buying everything. They bought this. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. And, and they let us do it. And so we just jumped in and went at it and I had a great time doing it. It was a great time suck for me, which was, <laughs> I got into it and we had a good time. And everybody I work with wants to, on, on the, that team wants to continue. I, yeah. I'm running out of steam a little bit. I'm certainly running out of favors. I think it probably has to be. And I did like the booking. I booked every single guest. Yeah. And that was, I didn't love that humbling experience. Outside of our final guest, John Mulaney was the first guest, which was a sort of ironic. They, I, hey, I want to do your, I'm a fan. I want to do your podcast. So that was a nice way to go out. But yeah, uh, that's what happens when you're around the loop long well, enough. Let us say, my, my guys tell me like, you got to just stay at it and, yeah. and let the catalog build and we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. It was fun. I hadn't been behind a microphone since my college radio days. and It was fun. For me, I love listening to that podcast. First and foremost, it. I got this in the mail today, which is my Paramount <laughs> letter. From being an employee at Viacom from 98 to, 9, to 2007, I get pension. So thank you, first yeah, and me foremost. Too. <laughs> me too. I right? Thank you for being part of a company that gave creatives like me not only an opportunity. So you were there, you were there, you were there during uh, some of the really good years. Some uh, good right? years, right? Yeah, some yeah. big decisions were made. Big well, work. You worked for Tom Freston and Judy McGrath and yeah. that crew, and those were amazing people. When I was at MTV in 98, I'm watching MTV. We would still be creating like our origin story. I was watching stories about MTV get launched, working with them. You went on to become president of many networks, by the way, none of which existed when you were a child. So what did you That's want what I always to tell people? None, none existed the day I went to yeah. college. You lead 
your podcast with this question. So I'm honored to get to ask it to you, but what do you remember about the early days of cable? I was there at the beginning, honestly, or close cable didn't exist for the most part when I entered college in 1977, wanting to be in the TV business. But by the time I got out in 1981, it was basically the dawn of cable television. The ESPN had launched. MTV would launch literally two months after I graduated college. That was, of course, of great interest to me. Uh, ESPN had already launched. And I was at CNN as an intern the day they launched in June of 1980. I was in their Los Angeles bureau. And I remember that we were in a small office suite. It was just a little office. We were paired with a satellite company. I remember them furiously trying to get the picture up from Atlanta. If we could <laughs> see it. And, I, and by the way, the only place you could watch CNN, not the only place, but one of the few places you could watch CNN was in our office. Like where I lived, there was no cable yet. My dad lived in Orange County. I remember I'd go on the weekends down to my dad's place in Newport and we'd stay up all night drinking beer and smoking pot and watching MTV. I, I remember the the earliest days and we didn't call it a startup, but it was a startup. Yeah. That's not what they called them then, but that's yeah. what they were. And I can even remember getting to MTV in 84. It was already high flying. It was, had been on the cover of Time Magazine. This was the summer of Bruce Springsteen, Born in the oh, USA, yeah. Princess Purple Rain, Thriller and the Jacksons tour, Madonna. I would call that like the Mount Rushmore of early MTV. So it was raging when I got there, but then pretty quickly, the quote novelty of music videos passed. And I remember there was some anxiety in the halls, even as late as 1984, is this thing going to make it? But, it, but we weren't, we weren't sure. It was like, oh my God, if, we, if it's not, if it's not all about music videos, then what is it about? It turned out to be about original programming. We could talk about that. But the early days, it was like graduate school for me. And it were, they were like startups. You got to do everything. It was great opportunities for young people. Uh, the opportunities for me otherwise would have been trying to figure out how to get on a game show to do cue cards in Hollywood because there were only three TV networks and PBS. And then everything changed and they really, and they needed young people. CNN hired a ton of young people. ESPN hired a ton of young people. MTV hired a ton of young people. And I got to grow up in that industry. It was awesome. Yeah. I love that you started in news. Yeah. The late nineties Fox news launched here in New York and I, Hannity and Combs is the first show I got to work on as a oh, really? casting coordinator. I had this Excel database that I would use to like track who signed their releases and who asked questions and yeah. It was that experience that got Cyrilnik and a couple of people over at MTV's attention to me. I, I got to cast Choose or Lose and found Gideon oh, wow. Diego oh, and wow. ushered in. So when you talk about your Mount Rushmore of, and I got to MTV with Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and the Spice Girls. And yeah, that was your Mount Rushmore. Talk about programming. And I'm sure you were very involved in the casting process. I can remember casting the first season of The Real World. I can remember yeah. casting the first couple of seasons of The Real World, but certainly the first season. We didn't. You were at MTV in an era where there was much more casting. I put the real world on in whatever it was, 1993, I think. And that was, there was no playbook for that. There was no blueprint. Nobody called it reality television. We referred to it as a docu-soap. That's how John Murray sold it to us. Mm -hmm. And people have often said that's where the whole thing starts in terms of reality TV. And then the next thing we did, which in the great MTV tradition of whatever works, whatever's worth doing is worth overdoing. Uh, like, but what do we do now that the real world works? And a guy named Joe DeVol and a bunch of people came up with the idea of road rules. And so that's where that's like probably the second 
time casting came into the mix. Oh, that's I was already, I already had one foot out the door at that point. I left in the summer of 1995 to go take over Comedy Central. Oh yeah, sure. South Park, all other gigantic. South Park and the Daily Show and all Brian, that. Brian, that's I think where Brian Graydon first got in my peripheral. And that, that's... Like I, I really started pra- reading credits, man. Like I was like I was a student of. TV yeah, I tried to hire Brian to come to Comedy Central to run original programming, huh. which he turned down, and then he came back a few months later with South Park and sold it to me, and then he ultimately went on to take a job as head of original programming at TV, which by the way, which is a much bigger, better job, certainly. Comedy Central was very much fledgling in those days. Is it, the, is there generally an idea that comes first or you've worked with really strong comedians well, and it's, a, it's certainly a combination. Sometimes it's like a format and then you go find the talent. Yeah. And sometimes the talent will, you know, in the door and you find a format for that talent or they have pitched one. But I always felt I had a really, I didn't, I shouldn't say this. In retrospect, I feel like I had a good eye for talent. I didn't, wasn't really conscious of it. Then I, I gave Adam Sandler probably his first job where he got noticed, which yeah. he was still a student at NYU on remote control. I was going to, my face just dropped when yeah. I realized you're the man. Behind yeah, that, I, I gave, that's I gave, the show that brought me to the network, by the way. Well, there you go. Great show. Tremendous yeah. show. Yeah. And that was a game changer for us. I gave Ben Stiller his first paying directing gig, <laughs> uh, doing a Colin Quinn special for, for MTV. Colin Quinn, of course, we cast. And so I felt like I always had an eye. John Stewart yeah. we found early on and put him on MTV. Matt and Trey, I was lucky enough to stumble into by way of a woman named Debbie Liebling because they had that great tape going around. But yeah, it's look, it's always about talent. And there's a writer's strike going on right now. And if you don't have talent and if you don't have great ideas, you don't have anything. That's, I'm just a believer in that. And, and data analytics, AI chatbot, whatever you want, they're going to make stuff without real people and they're already yeah. doing it. Yeah. But I think I'm old school in that. I think the best ideas come from really inspired people and people who can execute against them and make it work. And I'm a, I'm just a big believer in talented people and point of view is really, really important, particularly in comedy. Do you make a conscious effort to surround yourself with comedians and talent, people who are well, out, high level output and that's well, yeah, I did at comedy central, you just go down the list. And I think everybody that really succeeded there had a very distinct point of view were brilliantly funny and they found themselves in the right format. So whether it was John Stewart or Dave Chappelle or Matt and Trey, or then the list goes on, Amy Schumer, he and peel the workaholics, Nick Kroll, broad city, the list goes on. They're brilliantly talented. They had a vision. They had a point of view. They were super funny and they were on the right platform to talk to the right audience, which is also important. Yeah. So looking back at the early years, what lesson did you learn in the beginning part of your career that you took with you? Uh, so many. MTV was such a Petri dish of incredibly inspired, talented, creative people, both in the executive ranks, in front of the camera, behind the camera. It was really, it was an amazing time. It was very Camelot-like. And like I said, I think in even getting there in the late nineties, as you did, you were probably able to that, that was still part of the tail end of that era. Mm-hmm. That stretch, I'd say that stretch into the early 2000s until all the disruptions really started. In terms of identifying things that you wanted to put on the air, I didn't ever really pay too much attention to research or conventional wisdom. It was a little bit like if it appealed to me, and I was part of the audience early in my career. When I was in my 20s and my 30s, and it was in some of these jobs, I was the audience we were going after, right? So I felt comfortable that I could bring that perspective to it. But it was mostly like, did I like it? Did it amuse me? Did it make mm-hmm. me laugh? Did it get me interested? So that's where I think you have to start with, do I like this? Is there, a, do I have a passion for this? 
and and see if we can develop this and get it to the place it needs to be and not listen to too much of the outside noise yeah like conventional wisdom like i said or or now data and analytics i'm a, again old school but i'm a bit of a gut guy yeah but i love this i think nowadays <laughs> so much there, there's this idea that we need i have to have everything aligned yeah perfectly. so checking all the boxes i'm not saying look you no know, i'm a never say never guy so i'm not saying it can't work or won't work but I felt like chasing after checking the boxes rarely got me or yeah. us to the finish line. Yeah. And more often than not, it was that something that you didn't see coming. That, oh, that's you brilliant. Know, yeah. If you're yeah, focused that, on the boxes, you're not going to see what's coming. Well, exactly. Exactly. And the truth is nobody knows. And if anybody knew, you and I wouldn't be sitting here. Having, if I knew, <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here on this podcast with you. I'd probably be on a private island somewhere with all due respect. <laughs> but, and the audience always decides. So the idea is how do you get this thing, whatever it is, teed up in the best possible way so you can deliver it to your audience on hopefully in the right way on the right platform. And they ultimately make the final decision. Yeah. So, always. so speaking of the audience, you've worked at many networks, but you're, you have this reputation and impact specifically in the youth audience, the audience that's really leaned into content that can take action and move. Is that by, is that by design or is that? I was a young person. I was youthful once. And like I said, <laughs> MTV, I always felt MTV was created for me. I was like, oh my God, I have to work there. I have a copy of a letter that I wrote to Mike Nesmith, who was one of the members of the Monkees, who dabbled early on pre-MTV in the world of music video through his production company, he actually had a syndicated show called Pop Clips. And I have a letter that I wrote him when I was in college. This is pre-MTV, telling him how I believe the future of television was in music and videos. Of course, I'm just making that up as a college student at the time, trying to get an internship. But I, but I was uniquely interested in MTV and wanted desperately to work there. It took me a couple of years to get in, but, but I got in there. And look, and when I got to MTV, I was 25 years old. And I was like handed, I got to run the news department and with pretty short amount of time started running original programming. So I was the audience and I was programming to the audience. So I was yeah. living it and loving it. And it was great. Now, over time, as I got older, I began to trust my instincts a little less as I quote <laughs> moved out of the demo, but I always made sure that I had great people with their ears to the ground younger than me who were always doing that stuff. And the same with Comedy Central. I was, I was a big comedy fan and loved that stuff. And we, we had a predominantly, to a certain degree, a guy audience and yeah. felt like it was part of the audience. And I, what made me laugh is the stuff that I tried to get onto Comedy Central. So oh, yeah. there's, not a lot of, there's not a lot of magic involved, but there's a lot of hard work and persistence pushing these things forward to try and get them onto air. All right, this is, this is happening. You're in it. What's the first award that you won, that you were able to leverage as an executive in your own personal career? Like how does, what does winning? Win, we, winning didn't really happen that much. We, first of all, in the early days of cable, we were not eligible for the Emmys. Oh, sure. Yeah. So there was something called the Cable Ace Awards, which is, deserves its own episode of Basic sometime, honestly. And honestly, we never won one. We used to, because those times MTV had very little original programming. And it was mostly game show and mm -hmm. we would always lose to Nickelodeon's Double Dare, which made us doubly mad because they were our siblings. Yeah. Uh, we did win. It's funny. I have them right here. We did win a couple of Peabody Awards early on. I remember that. The MTV News Department. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I've got a, I got a couple of those. Pretty legit. Uh, but honestly, MTV didn't, it was not about awards. It was about the audience and the buzz and that's who loved us and not the critics generally. But we had a little bit of a thing that if the critics liked it, it probably wasn't for MTV. 
Later on, as cable original programming began to really develop and emerge, I would say in the early 2000s, for instance, we won, I, when I went to the USA Network, we won a Golden Globe for Monk, which was a big deal for Souls of the USA Network. And then later on, Comedy Central, God bless Jon Stewart and South Park. John won tons of Emmys and South Park won a bunch and Colbert won his share. And then even Amy Schumer. When John came back to Comedy Central, he had a little bit of a name. He had been on MTV. He had done some Larry Sanders, but he was not John Stewart yet. That's where he really came to fame. And then Matt, nobody knew who Matt and Trey were before South Park. And even people like Nick Roll or Amy Schumer, or Kean Peel or Daniel Tosh or Sarah Silverman or even Chappelle, they were, they were somewhere between a little well-known or not well-known at all. And then really got a giant boost from their, whatever their show was on Comedy Central. Right talent, right time. So you, you have a lot of professional conditioning to media. What have you had to unlearn? or de-learn just in this independent podcast space as a creative, what, what are the things that fly that you thought wouldn't fly or any of the deprogramming from where we come from for this oh, for wild west, the wild west. Yeah. Of indie. Uh, God, actually, because to a certain extent, particularly at MTV in the early days, we were making it up as we went along. There's a lot, there's a lot of that goes on. I think right. in this podcast world, now I know where I learned it, it from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you just try and trust your instincts. Right. Yeah. And, and have a sense and hopefully an innate sense of where the lines are. As I look back on what we did at places like MTV and Comedy Central, there's no question we stepped over the line many times. That was part of the brand and part of the promise. You got to know where the I'm line sure, is. I'm not sure we would step over the line now in the same way we did then. In fact, I'm certain we probably wouldn't. Some of that I'm not proud of. But for the most part, I thought we handled ourselves and our brands pretty well. And so that's what I would, would try and bring to the podcast. And look, the other thing is, and I know somebody's always listening, but the truth is doing a podcast versus having a platform like MTV and Comedy Central sort of night and day and oh, sure. apples and oranges. We, we have a nice little dedicated audience on our basic podcast, but it's not being out there in the heyday of basic cable. In my day, back in the 80s and 90s, I was a gatekeeper, right? To get onto MTV or Comedy Central, you had to go through me. Now that still exists to a certain degree, but there are also ways to get your stuff out there on platforms and not have to go through anybody. And so the audience is much more in control. And the great secret of the real world was turning the camera on the audience. That's ultimately what they were really most interested in. And we stumbled on that by going to the spring break. And you, know, you talked about community. There was a community of MTV viewers, but they weren't connected. And the only time they could get connected is when we would do live events, they'd all be together. And so when we would turn the cameras on them at spring break and saw how much they loved watching each other, that was kind of like a light bulb went off. And that's when, when the real world came our way, we were like, wow, this is interesting. Let's turn the camera on the audience and see what happens. And as it turns out, there isn't anything they liked better. And it still, it spawned an entire generation of programming and other things. Sure. It's still going today. And I always say you could draw a straight line from the real world to the selfie. I think the selfie is a direct descendant of the real world. We were a cradle to grave programmers. You start as a kid with Nickelodeon yeah. and you graduate to MTV and Comedy Central, and then you move on to like TV land and Nick at night. There was like <laughs> this idea that we could actually drag talent all the way through that arc. And Nick is Nick's a good example. Oh, that's cool. He made the jump from Nickelodeon to MTV. I would meet celebrities and talent, especially their kids started getting old enough to be right for MTV or too young. 
And I'll never forget meeting someone and being like, oh, you're just on the outside of our demographic. Let me walk you upstairs to Nickelodeon or to VH1 because like, I need you at 1550. I got to meet Barbara Barna Abel, who was running VH1 talent back in the days. And she has a podcast called Camera Ready Abel. I told her that you were coming on and we prepped a little question for you if I can. Oh, all right. Doug is a story leader in an industry that doesn't always train leaders on the creative producer side to be strong managers and leaders. So as non-networks are beginning to create their own content, what advice would you give to how to train managers and leaders effectively that are dealing with creative content? I would remind them that nobody knows anything and to <laughs> keep an open mind, Amen. right? Because nobody knows. People go, this is never going to work. You don't know that. And I can tell you things that I thought where I said that and it worked and things that I thought was, were going to be home runs and fail miserably. So nobody knows. Huh. Listen to the talent. Mm. Listen to them. They're the beginning and the end of this. And at the end of the day, you're not going to succeed unless they have a great idea and are able to execute it in the best possible way. And you got to listen to them. You really do. And you have to support them. And that's a delicate thing. One of the most important things, though, particularly for creative executives, is learning to say no graciously. Is you basically say no a lot more than you say yes, a lot more. And you need to do, you need to find a way to do it that's constructive, that's clear, and that doesn't crush the person across the room or across the table because you want them to come back tomorrow with their hopefully better idea. So learning to say no is an absolute art and an essential thing. I love and then that. being able just to st and then stand up for what you believe in. If you're really passionate about it, you really believe it, you got to be, got to be prepared to fight for it. Because if you're not, then who will? Especially if, you know, you're that representative of the project in the building, the talent's not in the building, and you're there to, as the champion. You know, if you really believe in it, champion it and go all the way, fight for it. There's that instinct when you're sitting in the seat and you're a young person with a little power, as I was, to just yeah. go, hey, what about this? Or what about that? Or isn't this a better idea? Or have you thought about that? And I pretty quickly learned, look, my famous story is Matt and Trey had done the pilot for South Park. They were in my office. We we're discussing it. I knew them a little bit, didn't know them that well yet. And they were telling me how they wanted to kill Kenny every episode. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Is that a good idea? Is that funny? Killing the guy is. And I could just see they're like, their faces drop and they're looking at me like I have three heads on my fire. I was like, okay, just, yeah, sure. That's whatever you guys want to do. <laughs> they're like, and I learned pretty quickly just to get out of the way. <laughs> we learned quickly. They probably started throwing in more ridiculous notes that you could say no to. So that. Well, it's so Kenny. funny. They, some of the early. <laughs> scripts i can remember i remember one in particular it was like literally episode three or four you can look this up i think it was a it may still be called when an elephant fucks a pig and i'm like wait <laughs> i don't think we could do this but as it turned out we could and we did and they did wow. so anyway but i think that was a little bit their strategy they just kept on every time we push back they push it forward a little more yeah and look they ended up doing everything they wanted to do for the most part and still are and still brilliant and uh, so god bless them god yeah. bless them Wow. All right. My last question, how has the role of an artist, a creator changed from like then to now? What are the things that creators can be mindful of that are available to them now, maybe versus a few well, years ago? I mean, there's back? so much more available to them in terms of, like I said, I was a gatekeeper and if you wanted to get on MTV, you had to come see me. Yeah. There are different ways to now get yourself noticed. There's different ways to get on MTV or any platform. Look, at the end of the day, artists are artists, and I don't know that has changed much. The tools they have, the platforms they have, the information they have, all, I think, make it not easier because it's never easy, 
but I think it gives them more opportunities to figure out ways to express themselves in the way they want to. And, and it's a great thing. And that'll only continue to grow. That is awesome. By the way, thank you for being here and y'all no, listening no to this. Like we are just take a deep breath with <laughs> Doug Herzog, by the way, take a deep breath, a deep Let's creative go. breath. Take a deep breath. Yeah. Yeah, but Doug Herzog, man, the, you inspire me to have been a creative. You've given me oh, the platform that. to get to execute these crazy ideas that I've had. But more importantly, seeing you step into the indie side of content, I hope that I hope that all my brothers and sisters and family members in media who are also finding their own way also see the power in being the source of a story and not just serving the story. Right? I understand the importance of storytelling. But let's talk about the importance of just being the source. And I think being the source allows the story to thrive and take shape in a way that otherwise it wouldn't be. Thank you so much for being here, bud. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun. And for people listening to this, they're probably going to go head over to Basic. They're probably going to see the John Mulaney episode. It's a great episode. It's a little over an hour. It's worth it's, every It's a long minute. one. We let, it's we worth let it. roll on that one. It is amusing. And he has a, if you're a fan, you will be absolutely floored. His recall and his memory and his oh, grasp of like details and dates and times but it's just uncanny and going back 20 years it was a lot of fun we were, ha we were happy to talk to him and i was happy to talk to you Vinny. thanks so much super cool so for all y'all listening what i'm going to ask you to do next is really important it's a little bit this is the strategist in me coming out you know where to, you know how to play podcasts you've obviously hit play you're listening to this podcast when you go to hit stop pause or whatever happens next here's my ask my plead for you is to play basic B-A-S-I-C with a big old exclamation point in it. Play basic right after this. It does two things. One, I want you to listen to this episode that I'm talking about. I want you to be inspired as I am. Two, it sends a signal to Apple Podcasts and says that people who listen to my podcast also listen to Doug's podcast. And this is a way that us Viacomers, us Paramounters, us MT, this is the way us creatives know how to support in community by elevating each other up. So I appreciate you listening to our episode and giving basic some support. Doug, you're a rock star. Thanks for being here. Thanks, man. You've been listening to I Have a Podcast with Vinny Podestivo. If you'd like what you heard and you want to hear more, please find us at ihaveapodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next week.